We meet today in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 to verse 21. In this chapter we are looking at the prophecy of the child coming to David's throne and the dark days attending his first coming and preceding his second coming. This chapter is one with which Christians are generally familiar because of the prophecy concerning the coming child who is Christ. The material presented in Isaiah chapter 7 to chapter 12 contains prophecies that Isaiah made during the reign of King Ahaz. Ahaz was one bad king that reigned during the period in which Isaiah prophesied. Isaiah began to prophesy at the death of Uzziah, who reigned for 52 years and was a good king. The next king was Jotham, Uzziah's son, who was also a good king. The next king was Ahaz, the grandson of Uzziah, and the son of Jotham, who was a bad king and a phony besides. It was during the reign of Ahaz that Isaiah made these prophecies concerning the Messiah. It was a dark period in the history of the nation. What is the hope of Israel? In verses 1 to verse 7, we find that the hope of Israel is in the divine child in both his first and second comings. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah 9 verse 1. See, this verse is actually the last verse of chapter 8. This verse states that those regions in northern Galilee, the tribes of Zebulun, Naphtali, which had suffered the most from Assyria, would experience deliverance. The way of the sea, known in later centuries as the Via Maris, was a portion of the most important international route through Israel. It ran about 1,770 miles from Ur in Mesopotamia, northwest through Haran, then northwest through Palestine to Thebes in southern Egypt. Now parts of the road had names. The way of the sea was the portion that ran from Gaza to Hazo, often coming near the coast and passing along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles is literally the circuit of the Gentiles. It was so called because this northmost part of ancient Israel was the gateway through which Gentiles entered the land of Israel, either as traders or invaders. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. This is the hope of Israel. The people in despised Galilee were in the darkness of paganism and religious tradition. That is the place, the one place where the Old Testament and paganism from the outside mingled and mixed. 
when the Lord Jesus began his ministry in that area, the people did see a great light. They saw the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. John 8 verse 12 tells us, Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, this was fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. I think it is safe to say that the first two verses refer to the Lord's first coming. Isaiah 9 verse 3 You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The nation had been greatly multiplied and the people were more religious, but the joy was gone. They had a lot of religion, but they never had Christ. It was a period of great manifestation, but no real joy. Now the gap between verses 2 and verse 3 has already been 2,000 years long. Why didn't Isaiah give any prophecy about this period? Well, because during this interval, God is calling out the church, which was unknown to Isaiah in those days. In Romans chapter 16, verse 25 to 26, Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to faith. Paul makes it very clear that the prophets passed over that which they did not see, as Isaiah does in the chapter before us. In Isaiah 63, we will come to a place where, with just a comma, Isaiah passes over a period of time that is already 2,000 years long. The people in Isaiah's day had no revelation concerning the church, but today the church has been revealed and the interval is now filled in. This makes it clear that the rest of this chapter refers to the nation Israel, and the nation that was multiplied was the nation over which Ahaz was king. Notice that Paul says it was made known to all nations for obedience of faith. So you see, the revelation of the church was for a different congregation. Isaiah was speaking only to one nation, his own nation of Israel. For you have broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Isaiah 9 verse 4. Now when will the burden be broken? It will be broken when Christ comes again. Why is it that Israel today cannot enjoy peace? Why are they plagued along every border? They are having all this trouble because they rejected the only one who can bring peace, their own Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the oppressor will not be broken until the Lord comes the second time. For every warrior scandal from the noise battle, 
and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Isaiah 9 verse 5. You see, Israel has a Messiah whom they have rejected. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the only one who can bring peace to this troubled and persecuted people. While these verses complete the thought of vestry, they also look beyond the immediate time to the great tribulation period which is coming in the future. Now we see the prediction of their Messiah coming. Isaiah 9 verse 6 and verse 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. How will this come about? Well, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Is this a reference to the first coming of Christ? Most Christians seem to think it is because they caught it at Christmas time. However, I feel that it refers to the second coming of Christ when he will be born to the nation of Israel. This is a complete prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming, as Isaiah 53 is of his first coming. These verses continue the thought which we picked up in verse 3, and they look forward to the second coming of Christ. The question now arises as to how a child is born at his second coming. Well, first of all, let me clearly state that he was not born unto us. The nation Israel at his first coming, they didn't receive him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. John 1 verse 11. Although he was born at Bethlehem the first time, he was not received by the nation only a few shepherds welcomed him. The wise men who came to worship him were Gentiles from a foreign land. If you read verse 6 carefully, you will see that it was not fulfilled at his first coming, nor were verses 3, 5, and 7. To say that Christ will be born to the nation of Israel might be better stated. Actually, Israel will be born as a nation at once which is perfectly clear in the final chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 66 verse 7 and verse 8 tells us, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. You see, my friend, Israel is to be delivered of a male child in the future, not by his birth, but by Israel's birth. This will be the new birth of the nation Israel when Christ comes again. Israel will be born at the second coming of Christ. Now, I see no objection to calling attention to the fact that the child is born, that is, his humanity. 
the son is given which will be true at his first coming. In other words, it will be the same Jesus Christ who was here over 2,000 years ago. The government shall be upon his shoulder. The shoulder speaks of strength. The government of this world will be placed on his strong shoulders at his second coming. It was not at his first coming. Notice the names that are given to our Lord. He is called Wonderful. This is not an adjective. This is his name. In Judges chapter 13 verse 18, we see the pre-incarnate Christ appearing as the captain of the host of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? In Matthew chapter 11 verse 27, the Lord Jesus said, No one knows the Son except the Father. You see, the people did not know it, but he was wonderful. And people still don't know it today. There are Christians who have trusted him as a savior, but really don't know how wonderful he is. He is going to put down rebellion when he comes to the earth the second time. And he is going to reign on the earth. His name is wonderful. His second name is Counselor. You see, he never sought the counsel of men. He never asked for the advice of men. Romans chapter 11 verse 34 tells us, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? God has no counselor. The Lord Jesus Christ never called his disciples together and says, Now, fellows, what do you think I ought to do? <laughs> you don't read anything like that in the scripture. The Lord called them together and said, This is what I'm going to do because this is my Father's will. And Christ has been made to us wisdom. Most of us are not very smart. We must go to him for help. His third name is Mighty God. The Hebrew word for this name is El Gabon. He is the one to whom all power is given. He is the omnipotent God. That title, that little baby lying helplessly on Mary's bosom held the universe together. He said, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. He is the mighty God. His fourth name is Everlasting Father. Avad, Father of Eternity. This simply means that he is the creator of all things, even time, the ages and far off purposes of all things. As John said, all things were made by him, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. John 1 verse 3. In Colossians 1 verse 16, we are told, Paul says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Then in Hebrews 1 verse 1 to verse 2 we read, God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds or the ages. The translation of the word world, Ione, should be ages instead of worlds. That is the thought in this title of his 
Father of Eternity. Then finally he is the Prince of Peace, Sir Shalohim. There can be no peace on this earth, my friend, until he is reigning. His government is not static. There is an increase and growth. No two days are going to be alike when Jesus is reigning. He is going to occupy the throne of David. This is a literal throne which he will occupy at his second coming. Justice will be dominant in his rule. God's zeal, not man's dumb plans, will accomplish this. Now, taken together, all the names of the Messiah, of the coming Messiah, are an extension of one name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. They are not names in the modern sense, but rather they are attributes of the one to whom they are given. The remainder of this chapter, verses 7 to verse 21, cover the local situation in Isaiah's day and will be partially fulfilled in the immediate future. But it also looks forward to the time of the great tribulation for a full and final fulfillment. God will continue to punish this nation and all the nations that have turned their backs on him until he comes again. Modern men don't like to hear this. They would rather listen to something comforting. Check your history books, my friend, and see what happened to Israel and other nations who left God out. They have heard a sad, sordid story. And I'm afraid that you and I live in nations that are getting ready for God's judgment. Just listen to these few verses. Isaiah 9, verse 8 to verse 10. The Lord sent a word against Jacob. And it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. Who say in pride and arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down. But we will rebuild with hern stones. The sycamores are cut down. But we will replace them with cedars. You see the northern kingdom of Israel. Described by Isaiah as Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria was condemned by God for its arrogance and pride. Isaiah envisions a conversation between God and the Israelites when he tells them that their cities, buildings, and houses will be destroyed. They boast that they will not only rebuild, but do so with more costly materials, hewn stones instead of bricks, cedar instead of sycamore. For these and other sins, the Lord promised that the Syrians and the Philistines would devour the nation like two jaws. Later, the Assyrians would completely swallow the nation. Isaiah 9 verse 12. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind. And they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Four times Isaiah repeats the phrase, For all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He says that in verse 12, in verse 17, in verse 21, and even in chapter 10, verse 4. What was it that caused this unending wrath on the northern kingdom? 
variously called Jacob, Israel, Ephraim, and Samaria. Well, Isaiah names five crimes of the Israelites as first, pride and arrogance, verse 9 to verse 10. Secondly, refusal to repent and return to God despite his discipline, verse 13. Thirdly, the corruption of the nation's leaders, verse 15 to verse 16. Fourthly, widespread hypocrisy and wickedness, verse 17. And fifthly and lastly, unjust laws and policies that robbed the poor. That is the subject of chapter 10, verse 1 and verse 2. Because of these sins which were practiced for generations, the Lord promised to bring enemies who would destroy the nation's cities, dispose its leadership, kill the people, and cause widespread famine and civil war. All of these prophecies came to their final fulfillment during the rule of King Hosea, who ruled in the century 732 to 722 AD. And the record is also in Second Kings chapter 17, verse 1 to verse 18. Now, my friend, as we look back on what happened from today's perspective, it is worthy asking the question, which of the sins that led to Israel's downfall persist in our own society? No one knows exactly how God will deal with modern nations that continually disregard his ways. But it seems likely that where widespread sin is tolerated and even institutionalized, God may allow the same kind of profound judgment to fall. The alternative, my friend, is to turn away from evil and develop a culture of honesty, purity, and justice. You can have copies of the notes and outlines used for these Living Word for Africa programs so you can follow them as you listen. For your copies, please send an email to info at twrafrica.org. Please say which book of the Bible you want them for and be sure to include your name and contact information. Let me repeat that email address for you. Info at twrafrica.org